0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Mikhail Carter. Today we have Dr. Rache Richardson on the channel to talk about her latest book, Emancipation's Daughters, Reimagining Black Femininity in the National Body, published with Duke University Press. Dr. Richardson, it's wonderful to have you on.
2: Thank you for inviting me and for your interest in uh, interviewing me on Emancipation's Daughters of course and so one thing that really struck me
0: was the title um, Emancipation's Daughter." so I was like I seen it I was like you know what I have to read this book and so could you talk about your title and how did you come to choose it
2: yes so this book has uh, been many years in its development and has gone through uh, various stages Um Virgin 6 is what was published in the end. So I went through three full drafts before ever even submitting it to my editor at Duke University Press. And after um, that stage, I reassessed the project because in its uh, first major phase of development, I... um, focused on issues of national femininity, but then shifted to consider um, linkages between Black women and presidentialism. And so a whole version of the book explored all of those confluences. But in the end, um, both my editor and I agreed that it was not really um, the best possible thread and glue for the book and that the issues that were really important related to national femininity. And so I I, I am stripped it back down to that. And the concept of national femininity has been so important to me precisely because Black women have typically been marginalized and, and excluded in conceptualizing the national narratives. But in one of the more um, recent and truer versions of the book, what really coalesced was a pattern of Black women's national iconicity, particularly in the post-Bellum era and on. And so that became um, a kind of um, foundation for beginning to engage the discourses of emancipation, which are really flowering at this point and are so critically prolific and wonderful to see. But um, Emancipation's Daughters was the title that I um, concluded uh, was the best one for the project in its um, final stages and configurations that foregrounded figures from Mary McLeod Bethune on to Michelle Obama and the entertainer, Beyonce.
0: Thank you. Yeah, and I absolutely love the title. Um, and so could you talk about what was your motivation behind writing this book?
2: My motivation for writing it, I think that that's another um, complex process that I, I went through. Actually, um, I was working on another book. A different kind of project altogether, Uh, a manuscript on the 1850s and had already uh, written the proposal and was pretty set to work on that project as a follow-up to my first book, uh, Black Masculinity in the U.S. South from Uncle Tom to Gangsta. But then I think that our political arena began to really speak to me in certain ways as I recurrently saw um, images of Condoleezza Rice so saliently represented and on a national and eventually global um, platform. And her political salience and influence were both fascinating to me, as well as the um, approaches to her stylization and the showmanship that... that um, that self-presentation entailed, and so I began to read about her and, you know, research her. The next thing, I put my original project aside and was out giving talks related to that project. Michelle Obama only, um, I think, reinforced my um, my hunches that black women were um, so important and indispensable to think with and through in engaging national politics. And that in order to really grapple with that realm, it would be important to position Black women front and center. And so developing a Black feminist project that um, meditated on those research questions became a priority to me, I would say by the late 2000s. And um, that's how I eventually um, made my way to what became Emancipation's Daughters.
0: Nice, and so for some of these research questions, what type of, um, could you talk about the diverse sources that you use to answer those questions?
2: Yes, I I really um, am amazed by the resources that I was able to draw on in this project's development. And Many um, came into relief for very uh, different and diverse reasons. Um, first and foremost for me were just a, a range of biographical uh, sources that helped to prime me and think about some of the subjects in more nuanced and complex ways, and because I am a scholar both of Africana studies and uh, gender studies as well as uh, areas such as cultural studies, I really wanted the flexibility of incorporating uh, cultural analysis. And so the source material varies. The first chapter on Mary McLeod Bethune is really the most historical one, and that's where um, a lot of those resources tend to be clustered and come front and center in thinking about and analyzing Bethune. I um, I've loved the methods for examining her examining her within uh, historiography, but she's been um, less frequently taken up in literary studies. And so, one of the goals of that chapter was to really throw her work into. Um, older relief uh, from a literary standpoint, and particularly in light of the historical significance of documents that she produced, such as the last will and testament, which was published posthumously, and so um, and in general, the the priority has also been to focus on the voices and political writings of these various um, um, black women figures in um, the political realm who have attained uh, iconicity. And um, the, the records related to the, um, the hearings that unfolded over um, a multi-year time span on the question of council house in Washington, DC and making it a historical site Um, were we're really um, so important and indispensable in helping to anchor this argument from the very beginning. I mean, I'm still blown away. And I couldn't even use everything that I originally wanted to. Like an earlier version of that chapter was much longer. But um, the hearings, you know, revisiting them, I think, was just so crucial to help um, clarify how even when Black women become Um, so nationally significant over time, their legacies can end up being obscured and forgotten by some. And so the neoconservative climate of the 1980s that shadowed the hearings in 1982 and 1985, I I, I grapple with uh, to some degree. I also draw on material related to popular culture, film, and the visual art. And visual art, especially becomes um, valuable in my critique of Condoleezza Rice. The um, la- la- Latino, Latinx uh, artist Enrique Chagoya had um, staged some of the most provocative and compelling critiques that I came across as I worked toward uh, developing this project. And so uh, those... Um, insights from his artistic repertoire are crucial, I think, to advancing the critique of um, Condoleezza Rice as a reactionary, notwithstanding the important uh, contributions that she makes in representing people of African descent and especially Black women in the national arena. The Rosa Parks archive is very dear to my heart and home, literally, as someone who was born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama. And so I valued uh, the opportunity to um, explore the Children's Museum, which had um, been opened in Montgomery in, in 2006 uh, as um, an expansion of the main Rosa Parks Museum of Troy University at Montgomery and Lee Streets, the intersection where Rosa Parks was arrested in 1955. And um, her mentee, Dr. Mary Frances Witt, uh, was a dear friend of my mother's and uh, a club sister in in the federated clubs. And so she shared um, various resources with me. Elaine Smith is a Montgomery native and has played a crucial role in doing research on Bethune that I think has really importantly um, shaped the national conversations and expanded scholarly resources. So I was able to meet with her um, early on in this project's development. I had a dialogue with Dr. Betty Collier-Thomas, who has been at the vanguard and front line in the battle for council house and for ensuring its legacy as well as um, Mrs. Bethune's over time, so I've valued um, all of you know the resources that I've been able to draw on and the veteran thinkers and um, activists in this um, long and continuing struggle. There are. Um, there are, are so many voices that I think have made a difference uh, and a, a profound impact in this project's development that I really um, value a lot. And the general bibliography, I think, is very diverse. Like, there are news sources. And so I learned a lot, even as a result of engaging source material at that level. They became very important, for instance, in revisiting the um, Tri-City Memorial of Rosa Parks uh, that um, I think was so um, revealing on so many levels and and so deeply moving.
0: Wonderful. And so your book it centers um, on what you can cons- what you coined as black national femininities and considers how black women have acted as representatives of the national body and models of national femininity. How do you define these terms black national femininity? The national body and national femininity in your book.
2: Yes, that's a that's a wonderful question. I think that for me, um, discourses of national out, discourses on nationality in general have always been very fascinating and important. Um, critically speaking, um, among my major influences have been. Um, scholars, say, publishing in the New Americanist uh, series at Duke University Press, and who take up um, questions of national identity and national soulhood, uh, whether we're talking about Lauren Berlant, whom I um, have deeply admired and uh, treasured and, and uh, so miss at this point, as well as Amy Kaplan, There's the work of Dana D. Nelson that I think has been profoundly influential in the development of that field. Eve Kasaspi Sedgwick, who was um, actually one of my uh, dearest um, um, mentors and influences at, at Duke, even though we didn't work together in a formal Way and then there have been other perspectives that have been valuable, like Benedict Anderson, for instance. His project uh, imagined communities that addressed the question of um, the the like the even the almost existence of, of 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 the notion of nation as far as how you know imagined national communities have been. Um, and Eve's work was really grounded in. Questions of nationality and sexuality, and I found it um, disturbing in some ways that whenever black women have been considered in relation to these questions of na- national identity, they've often come up in in conjunction with stereotypes. And so I wanted to um, refine the discourses on those um, on on those ideas. One of the I think that one of the interesting um, phenomena that I've seen, too, has to do with how identities that actually end up undergoing nationalization and globalization have consistently crystallized in the U.S. South and then been more broadly dispersed. And so my first book, which focused on discourses on Black masculinity, took up um, some of those dynamics and explored them um, with a lot of focus. And so this um, s- project builds upon that terrain and very much rests on it as well. And, you know, when one thinks of um, even in, der- in terms of, you know, what it means to think about femininity as a concept and how it works, you know, as a a, um, a scholar in women's studies, I've had a long-standing interest in and commitment to thinking about formations of race, gender, sexuality, class, and 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 um, nationality, and how all of those and others intersect. So, national femininity is that um, concept that I think is very much an outgrowth of all of those intellectual investments over time and thinking about how in the united states there's been a pattern where we've seen from i would say even the emergence of cinema um figures such as lillian gish for instance who have been at the center and foundation of ideologies that have been dispersed about white womanhood in the national arena in her case, in relation to birth of a nation. And we've seen this phenomenon even over time where white women from the South, you know, whether we're talking about Vera Fawcett, um, Reese Witherspoon, Julia Roberts, there's just been this ongoing pattern that has um, set them forth as America's sweetheart at various times. And those dynamics also, I think, very much apply to race and gender formations um, in relation to Blackness. And so that is what this project has attempted to articulate and you know, raise questions about what happens when we recognize the impact that Black women have played over time as premier uh, global and national subjects in ways that aren't necessarily mired in pathology, but from the antebellum era. I mean, we've seen Phyllis Wheatley, you know, become a national icon as the second um, woman to publish a book. And that was remarkable. Um, We can look at Sojourner Truth. We can look at Harriet Tubman. The pattern has been there uh, from the antebellum era, but I think consistently obscured by the ways in which Black women have consistently been uh, reduced to uh, stereotypes, and insistently so.
0: Thank you for that. Um, and so, yeah, I absolutely enjoyed like the thread you spoke of, like geography. And so, could you speak um, a little bit more on like the significance of geography and regions in relation to shaping national ideas of Black womanhood, and then also. Um, how national figures like Aunt Jemima, for instance, um, fostered these stereotypes of Black femininity.
2: Absolutely. Yes, Um, as a lens, geography has been inextricable to the critical approaches that I've used even from my dissertation stage. So work in cultural geography has played an important role as I have developed and formulated my research questions. And even now, um, thinking about space and all of the collaborations that I've begun with uh, colleagues, such as my, um, my colleague on campus here at Cornell, Peter Robinson, who's in um, architecture, the, the space, I think, matters so much. And, you know, thinking about how uh, consistently people of African descent have been marginalized, alienated, and excluded you know, in spaces in this nation and throughout Africa, the African diaspora is, is, is an um, acute critical concern for so many. So Malcolm X has been, um, interestingly enough, I think very saliently cited in uh, Southern studies, another primary area in which I've worked over the, um, the years of my career, including the New Southern Studies, a field whose critical development I've played um, a a primary role in. And Malcolm X famously uh, identified the South in the United States as anywhere below the Canadian border. And so that's very provocative. And I think that epistemologies in the global South and hemispheric South have challenged, they they played an important role in challenging the conventional geographies and temporalities that many of us use when we think about the U.S. South, so that it's not simply located below the Mason-Dixon line. What does it mean to talk about and recognize the phenomenon of Southern Diasporas, or even um, as uh, Jafari uh, Sinclair Allen has done to talk about queer diasporas, and and so these uh, approaches to geography that you know kind of take the North and South very literally are something that um, we've 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 challenged in in more contemporary Southern studies in order to get at more complex understandings of subject formations related to race, gender, sexuality, and a range of other areas. So the U.S. South has long played a role, a deeply problematic and troubling role in um, constituting ideologies in this nation that are also widely influential in spite of the region's longstanding status as being abject and the ideological uh, narratives that are also very problematic that have been um, related to the region. And we've seen them fully erupt in more recent times and definitely on January 6th, during the Capitol uh, rioting, it's all very deeply disturbing. But one of the things that I've um, worked with and one of the premises that I've worked from is that it has been um, a salient term in mediating race, gender, sexuality formations and and, and, um, scripts of African-American identity. So I've had to acknowledge geography in the work that I do, I would say, from the beginning. So my first project looked at Discourses of Uncle Tom, for instance, and their, you know, longstanding linkages to Black masculinity, as well as a range of other uh, stereotypes constituted in context from the military to popular culture in the realm of dirty South rap. So I was actually, of the early scholars to write about the dirty south and it's always been you know very fascinating thing to me i say that in that um project i looked at stereotypes and it was a kind of low road um on which to think about those national those formations of identity that crystallize in the u.s south and undergo nationalization in some cases globalization but In this uh, new project, I take the high road and look at these um, iconic and highly influential images um, and um, representatives of of Black womanhood that have uh, achieved national and global influence. Uh, The downside to that, this book argues and acknowledges is that Black queer and trans women have often been excluded from those models, um, because they've been um, heterosexist typically, and so one of the arguments that it makes, what you know, what's really important as well, is um, advocating for a, a much more inclusive and diverse democracy that accords legibility to a broader spectrum of subjects.
0: For sure. Thank you. And could you speak briefly um, or not briefly um, about Aunt Jemima um, as a national figure and how she fostered um,
2: stereotypes? Most definitely. Well, Aunt Jemima has never been who we are. So I've been working on her for a long time and Emancipation's Daughters wasn't really the first project Um that I published related to Aunt Jemima. That was actually years ago, and in the context of a critical essay that I um, I wrote and that ended up being published in the Mississippi Quarterly Southern Turns, which came out in I think two thousand three. And I looked at the the similarities in the marketing of Aunt Jemima and that television psychic uh, Miss Cleo. 110 years apart, there were just some amazing confluences that I was interested in exploring at that moment. And I had um, um, begun archival work on Aunt Jemima and other Black stereotypes for my first book project and looked at um, some of the the problematic images of um, Black people in advertising history more generally, the way in which they were so frequently reduced to character. My, my former um, colleague, Patricia A. Turner, has I think you know, done just such important and groundbreaking research on that area among other scholars. So this image of Aunt Jemima, I began to um, think about more directly in relation to the Emancipation's Daughters Project in the wake of the Charleston tragedy, when I was invited to um, write an op-ed for the New York Times to talk about other images and symbols that needed to go. And so I chose to focus on Aunt Jemima and got um, just a a, a really, um, I think, interesting reception and response um, back then to that piece including um, in the area of market research. And so I've been aware, you know, over time of some of the efforts that were being made to rethink this image. And then in the wake of the George Floyd tragedy, the conversations over symbols and monuments erupted yet again. And I was, you know, already researching monuments for Emancipation's Daughters. You know, the Bethune Monument on the Capitol is something that I discussed in the first chapter and it's uh, many years of development, the Rosa Parks statue. Um, I also touched on in the second chapter and um, there were even you know, several others that came up in, in the project for different reasons. So monuments were already front and center for me as a researcher. My colleague, um, Robert L. Harris had, um, I think really also helped to influence my thinking in that area as someone who's the National Historian for Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated and had been doing work on the National Monument to Dr. King. Here in Ithaca, I was a part of the Tompkins County Historical Commission, uh, appointed by the Tompkins County Legislature. So in my public role as a public servant, I was on the Monuments Committee within that And so monuments were very much um, on my mind for a range of reasons, as well as at the center of my research. The downside with so much of a fetishization of Aunt Jemima is that there's this um, hyper-visibility that has been associated with her over time, and she's definitely functioned as a spectacle Um, Lauren Berlin is actually one of my favorite critics on Aunt Jemima in terms of um, clarifying that her hyper embodiment has not necessarily translated into agency and voice. In fact, the um, representations of Aunt Jemima have been contingent on her voicelessness. And so even in the representations as far as how they circulated with in the advertising world, there's been little to no agency actually associated with um, Aunt Jemima as a symbol. There have been actresses who have embodied her very uh, compellingly. I am a, a huge fan myself of Hattie McDaniel and how she's given um, the roles that um, consign Black women to servanthood um that evoked the mammy stereotype, a lot of grace and dignity. And I think that it's, it's been easy for some to associate these representations and culture with authentic representations of Blackness. So that when the, you know, PepsiCo announced that the symbol was being removed There was a lot of outcry by some who thought that this was an attack on um, an empowered image of Black womanhood and a successful one. And if you're holding up Aunt Jemima as an illustration of who Black women have been and who we can be, then my goodness, that it, it crosses the line so far into fantasy in the sense that, you know, there's a denial of the, in, the roots of this um, stereotype in and, and plantation mythology and its, its, um, its meanings as a, as a racial and racist stereotype. So I'm, I'm thankful to have um, been able to um, research and discuss Aunt Jemima in the introduction of the Emancipation's Daughters mainly. As a as background for making a distinction between the abject images of Black womanhood that have been so frequently circulated at the national level and images that affirm Black women's agency, humani- um, humanity, and all of the greatest possibilities um, that, you know, are imaginable in relation to this category.
1: That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
0: Yes, for sure. And that's um, perfect into, to go into the next question. So how have uh, Black women national figures like Mary Bethune-Cookman, Rosa Parks, Michelle Obama, for instance, um, the individuals you speak about in your book, how do they challenge American stereotypes of Black womanhood and motherhood?
2: Yes, yes. I think that, yeah, thinking about epistemologies of motherhood is also another uh, valuable subtext in this book. And I I think one fascinating thing is that motifs related to motherhood have uh, saliently mediated the national legibility and articulations of um, all of those figures. You know, so there's this um, motif of Rosa Parks as the mother of the civil rights movement. Mira um, McLeod Bethune was very much linked to that motif. Michelle Obama uh, very differently in her own self-naming as mom-in-chief and in a way that soundly resisted the efforts of the Republican right wing to classify her as a baby mama, you know, whatever that means. Um, and we know what it means, but I'm, I'm just saying that the, the mothering motifs, I think, have been recurring. And I, and I think there's a variation in the example that I give of Condoleezza Rice to the extent that her parents and her family have um, played a role. Um, the, the image of Rosa Parks as a national mother is important to critique and definitely not to essentialize, but I'm also fascinated by ways in which she owned it. And because this project is invested very strongly in affirming and centering the voices of all the subjects, including Rosa Parks's, who's um, been you know, famously associated with notions such as quiet strength, and to the point that her own voice and writings have been obscured, Emancipation's Daughters, um, attempts to throw that voice into, you know, bolder relief. And so we, we, we I mean, because Rosa, Rosa Parks was always very clear about her experiences. I mean, she doesn't really need anyone to speak for her. She spoke for herself. And so I affirm the oral and I affirm the voices of Black women um, who are senior citizens drawing on the work of, you um, Some of my dearest mentors, such as um, Gloria Wade Gels, Dr. Gloria Wade Gels, who taught me at Spelman and who's the founder and director of the SIS Oral History Project based at Spelman. And it's through that critical lens that we can begin to think about the voices of the elders and what they mean. And to, you know, and and other methods of oral history, I think are very important as terrain for um, looking at the Oral works that um, Rosa Parks developed, in, in, in you know, in, in some cases in collaboration, but they are just, I think, important resources for us to think about as far as you know her legacy as well. So, the, I think the limits to you know the the focus on the mothering motifs is that again, you know, there's that tendency to only re Force um, a heterosexist um, view of the public sphere that excludes so many other people, and not you know only people say who are um, queer identified, but you know what does that what is at stake for even people who are single, you know when say Michelle Obama um, speaks at the Democratic National Convention in 2008 and you know talks about coming and being authorized to speak because she is, uh, you know, a daughter, a wife, a mother, you know, when people are not those things, does that make them less um, legible or qualified to speak or to address the nation or to act on behalf of it? And so all of those questions are very much entailed in this project. And um, I I wanted to challenge, too, some of the, the presumptions that when Black women do become or erupt as national mothers, that there's mimicry involved simply of white women. I I think that those presumptions have have been there a lot as well. And so they're ones that Emancipation's Daughters confronts to um, challenge those, um, I mean, the, the marginality of Black women and the exclusion. Of, of them in those kinds of scripts, and to affirm their agency. Another thing, final thing I'll say is that with the work on Michelle Obama, and to a certain extent, Beyonce, I I think that this book goes into a, a, a new territory in, in thinking about Black mothers and how being a mother doesn't necessarily exclude um, or preclude one for from, you know, making important national contributions. One of my dear uh, friends um, and someone whom I really admire a lot, Rache, uh, the other one, really, one of the others, actually, um, in this profession, Rache Daniel Barnes, has written a very important book entitled Raising the Race, you know, that idea that Black women can indeed have it all, that they don't have to choose, you know, you can be wives and mothers and so forth. And so those questions are, are subtly here as well, um, or they, they come up over time, you know, toward the end of the book.
0: Thank you so much. And so um, speaking of the end of the book, your conclusion, you focus on um, on Beyonce. And so the question is why Beyonce? Why did you choose Beyonce to conclude?
2: Yeah. um, Well, you know, my first project had again focused on the dirty South rap movement in the fifth and final chapter in that book. And popular culture is really always an important realm for me to think with and through in my intellectual projects, you know, from, uh, gina dent's early project on black popular culture i've just been intrigued by the phenomenon as well as by writings about it that have been produced by a range of critics including figures such as uh, bell hooks I, i i i love you know black popular culture and tend to think with and through it because i feel that something is missed when we don't and so You know, even Richard Aiton and a range of other critical figures have been there for me as far as, you know, and and, and I think come closer and closer into my own work as far as uh, thinking about the value of incorporating studies of popular culture methodologically into what I do and the research questions that I formulate. Um, Beyoncé was there from the beginning because of her serenade at the inauguration of Barack Obama in 2009. And the story that she told in interviews in the wake of that experience, you know, having parents who grew up in the segregated South, um, Dr. Matthew Knowles and uh, Mrs. Tina Knowles Lawson, and their respective homes in uh, Alabama and Texas. I, well, really Louisiana and then Texas. I, um, I, I was fascinated by those interviews, and so that was really the the story that was relevant for me for Emancipation's daughters, and that I began to write about. You know what does it mean, as Beyoncé said, you know, that she was there in that moment? I, I really, um, I thought that was important to acknowledge and as a way to punctuate the ending of a project like this that talks about, you know, how Black women emerge as national figures and icons. And by that time, Beyoncé's career as a solo artist was increasingly successful as well as influential in culture, you know, as her cultural authority um, expanded. and and so that was what was interesting to me about Beyonce initially. As time moved on, and it, definitely as we moved into the second decade of the 21st century and in the wake of the Trayvon Martin tragedy, Beyonce began to assume even more significance. I, um, you know, I was a strong supporter from the very beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. I was just outraged by what happened to uh, Trayvon Martin. Actually, spearheaded a panel here at Cornell where we discussed the George Zimmerman trial and um, Trayvon Martin and Rachel Gentile's uh, representations during that trial. So um, all of the anti-Black police killings. Um, you know, over those years, and the new waves of Black student movement that began to emerge in their wake were were were, were um, very much on my mind. And then, you know, there there were major tragedies that I think um, also brought more and more people together over time. But with the emergence of movements such as uh, Say Her Name and Take a Knee, Beyoncé was a... There is a a case to be made for her having been the reigning artist of that time. And nothing, um, I think, underscored the significance of her contributions more than maybe her awarding of the Ali Award to Colin Kaepernick. So... When Formation came out, that was a a turning point for me and Lemonade more broadly, uh, and including as a visual album and thinking about the messages, you know, the new national uh, narrative that she was setting forth, which I think was also anticipated even in the ascendance of Michelle and Barack Obama to the highest positions in the nation, um, as far as you know, what the White House means and its symbolism, And for if we think about the reactionary narratives, which I've studied and written about before, like birth of a nation, you know, they're they're premised on this purest notion of American identity, a very exclusionary notion that leaves black people out and sees them as as really even um, inimical to the national story and irrelevant. Well, Beyonce in formation, I've argued, does something else altogether. And so all of those contours began to become more refined as the time went on and 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 um, were incorporated into the chapter as well. I've generally been looking at Beyonce's influence on, I mean, one of the frustrations for me in, in terms of Beyonce studies is that, you know, her turn to the South did not start with formation. And um, the Lemonade album, it's been happening for a long time. And so even my earliest approaches in Beyonce studies looked at, you know, some of those earlier examples, even in Destiny's Child, in, you know, and in, in that were mediated by her positioning as um, a native Texan. You know, someone who performed at the inauguration of George W. Bush and was was very much um, citing uh, icons like Farrah Fawcett early on in Destiny's Child. So that is really even one of the um, examples that's important for me. So there are other things that I've written about Beyonce studies that go in a different direction and that acknowledge more of that, you know, and it been published separately in the anthology Beyonce and the world. But um, I, and, 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 you know, more recent times I've actually taught courses on Beyonce um, and as a result of the first course that I offered in 2017, her um, and Solange's father, uh, Dr. Matthew Knowles, reached out to uh, introduce himself to thank me for the course and to say, job well done. And um, I had a chance to you know work on a project to bring him to Cornell a few years ago to interview him alongside my um, friend and um, Harvard colleague at that time, now Emory. Dr. Marla Frederick, and we've been, you know, dialoguing ever since, like he, when I taught the course earlier this year, the second time around, he made several guest lectures. And so it's been really great, you know, that he's been so uh, supportive of my work uh, in um, research in the field of Beyonce studies, as well as my teaching.
0: Wonderful. Amazing. So um, what do you want readers to gain after reading Emancipation's Daughters?
2: Well, you know, one of the things for me and I think that that made it so important to write the book is that it's just a book that needed to be there. I see it as a kind of gateway to a range of ideas that maybe weren't as clarified before, but that this study helps to refine and throw into relief, including the the ways in which Black women do emerge as national um, icons. So it's not necessarily, like when we hear the story about Black women's objection, that's not the whole story. Or, um, you know, th- that when we, we hear, you know, the pathologies related to Black motherhood, that's not the whole story. So I think that that's, definitely one thing and to look at maybe uh, some of the cultural texts that aren't always as visible um, i mean it's astonishing to me that even my own art ended up at the um, incorporated into this project at least as a as a as a kind of visual through line for very different reasons um, i as i'm also a a mixed media appliqué quilt art artist and have done various ex- exhibitions um, over time, and it's always been interesting to me that as I'm writing on certain figures, I also tend to be making um, artistic tributes to them, and I see it as a coincidence. I don't know, maybe it's not, but um, because of you know that process, my editor. Courtney Berger at Duke University Press again. And I were thinking about what it would mean to maybe incorporate some of my art. But originally I was thinking as part of the cover design, like a medley of those quilt images related to the different chapters. And then one day it hit me that I, that we can't, you know, that that wouldn't be possible because in thumbnail format, you wouldn't really be able to see those images. And so her idea was to actually incorporate the visuals in the book And, I mean, I like them because, you know, some of my mentors have really encouraged me to, you know, think about my art even in a more direct way instead of keeping that, you know, separate spheres relationship. Um, So I I thank my mentors, especially people like Kathy Davidson, for encouraging me to, you know, um, draw more on on my art in some cases. But um, the... I think that it's a book that had to be there, and especially, I mean, I'm really so thankful. It has been a blessed book, and I am so thankful for, you know, all of the things I've learned on the journey in its development over time. I, I I will never stop glorifying the Lord, you know, for allowing me to publish the book and that everything came together as well as it did, including to the point that the book ended up. Um, being featured in the New York Times three times on the road to publication. I mean, that is just so out of this world. And then to receive two uh, major publishing awards on its path of development as well. I, I am really thankful for all of those things. Um, I'm thankful, you know, it was not ideal, you know, to end up have that it, I mean, it, it really had to be completed. Its final production stages happened in a pandemic and that's the other thing i think that's just been um, such a blessing that even so I, and you know in the face of the shutdowns i literally couldn't access anything in my office but i somehow had all the materials at home or could look them up online all the materials needed to complete the copy editing process and then you know to get through proofreading Later on, so I'm I'm just you know just doing cartwheels in my heart. You know, <laughs> I've never done a cartwheel in my life. I haven't been able to do that, but um, admire people who do. But I'm just saying that in my heart, I I'm just so thankful for all of the ways in which that came together. And in early December, like they told me that it would come out December tenth, so or the first copies would be in circulation. And that was true. Like the box of books literally arrived at my home address in Montgomery, Alabama, where I was by then on December 10th. Um, But it couldn't have been published at a better time. You know, in the moment when the first Black woman vice president had been elected and a moment when Stacey Abrams was claiming such a prominent national voice, I saw this book as really being a valuable kind of toolbox for people to draw on to understand how that happened and why. And so, it I I think Emancipation's Daughters is is really indispensable for the toolbox of anyone who you know wants to take that honest look at our public sphere and Black women's voices in it. And so from the standpoint of Emancipation's Daughters, Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams make perfect sense and are right on time. And so I think that the book especially is valuable to draw on for thinking about this contemporary political moment as well as this longer history.
0: And so I want to talk to you about this amazing cover art. Could you talk to the audiences about your cover, how did you choose this cover?
2: How did I choose that cover? Well, I didn't really choose it myself. You know, I have the graphics department at Duke University Press to to, to thank for that. Um, I, you know, methodologically, I'm always working on on my art, um, even if I'm not literally making art along with my academic work and, uh, it seems, a zillion other things. Um, In addition to, you know, my life, um, going to church, you know, spending time with my family, making a home and all those things. But I, um, in 2015, uh, Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery, has been a kind of home for me as an artist. And so that's where my first art show debuted, my first solo show in 2008, which came out um, uh, 40 years after the loss of Dr. King. And so civil rights motifs have been very prominent in my art and an ongoing site of reflection. And so that first show presented... uh, 19 quilts. And then the, the show in 2015 built upon that inaugural one and we positioned it. So this is my um, art curator and mentor, Georgette Norman. And Georgette Norman is the founding director of the Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery. And so we wanted it to be in the Montgomery public sphere to coincide with the Jubilee year that was the um, the 50th, year anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery March and the 60th anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott. And originally she scheduled it for the summer because there's a family series at the heart of my and foundation of my body of art quilts, the portraits project that I had by then been developing for nearly, well, by then for about 15 years. But so, and it was anchored by a, a triple Quilt, a three-panel quilt that featured my grandparents Joe Richardson and Emma Lou Jenkins Richardson, and my aunt Pamela uh, Garrett, that recreated her debut Tacotillion from 1976 uh, in Montgomery at Garrett Coliseum, and so that was the main exhibition. I mean, the the main installation, and it had light and sound effects and. Um, and um, was really very grounded in architecture, geometry, all of engineering, you know, all those principles. So that was one thing. And then the Civil Rights series was another important anchoring series for that show. And my, I was the speaker for the 100th birthday celebration of Rosa Parks. In Montgomery in 2013, and so was the invited speaker. Which, for an event that was just a really wonderful gala, and I always say that I enjoyed celebrating Rosa Parks' 100th birthday more than I've ever enjoyed celebrating a birthday of my own. That to this day remains one of the the best days, most blessed days of my life. And um, officials from Troy University were there, as well as the mayor, Nikki Finney, the Uh, National Poet came, Michelle Obama sent a letter. It was really a wonderful program, and they unveiled the stamp. And so that is when I donated the quilt to Rosa Parks Museum, and it's now in the lobby. And so there's a beautiful montage that greets visitors to the Rosa Parks Museum at home in Montgomery. Um, Wonderful uh, bust by Artist Lane and a range of other works. And so I'm honored that my quilt is included. And as an artist, I also often... Um, develop and design print cards in collaboration with, you know, photographers in tandem with certain key moments in the development of my art. And so there was a Rosa Parks print card that was released in 2013. And then in 2015, um, in tandem with the show, we released the print card featuring Dr. King, and this is a way, I think, to, you know, share the art more broadly. Like here at Cornell, the print card of my Toni Morrison quilt has been circulating, which was developed to honor her on her 80th birthday. So um, the cover, we had a photo shoot that, you know, captured high-resolution images of multiple quilts. And so all of that was just at the disposal of, of the graphics department at Duke University Press. And the Rosa Parks quilt was one that I think ended up being chosen, you know, for the statement that it makes. And um, almost anyone really could have, you know, but um, that quilt, I think symbolically says so much because if we look at it, like, people take a closer look i i use a an older map like the fabric and the back is actually a rainbow so it has a rainbow back but the the quilt speaks to the long history of black freedom the the long history of the black freedom struggle if we think of the the map as the backdrop against you know like a, a twist on Rosa Parks's arrest photo that's really not her arrest photo. So, all of that history is nuanced in the book as well. But I, I want it, she, she reminds us of that long and continuing struggle to attain Black freedom. And I think it's fitting that she's there for that reason as well.
0: For sure. And this is beautiful. And so I absolutely loved your book. Um, Thank you again for speaking with the new books network. Um, And so the last question, what are you working on next?
2: Wow. Um, There's another book that I'm definitely very excited about at this point. Um, So much about family helped to inspire The Emancipation's Daughters book, and particularly experiences that my grandparents and especially my grandmother had in Florida during the 1940s when they were part of a veritable Montgomery diaspora, um, working during the World War II years. And my grandmother uh, worked ship service in the Navy yard, doing things like filling in ledgers and passing out uniforms and that sort of thing. And my grandfather was a contractor in construction um, and working on building the barracks, along with a lot of our extended family members who had migrated to Florida in that moment, and then they went on to Daytona Beach, where the men built um, beachfront homes. And it was typical for their wives to travel with them, and in a lot of cases. And so, it was down there that my grandmother actually, you know, saw um, Mrs. Bethune, and she had already been a part of the N.Y.A., a program that Mrs. Bethune. Um, spearheaded. And so her memories about Mary McLeod Bethune were a big catalyzing force for that project. And then, you know, what the civil rights movement means more generally. um, My great aunt, uh, Johnny Rebecca Carr, was uh, very well known as the best friend of Rosa Parks. And so this project, I think, emerged for a range of reasons that were Um, scholarly, but also deeply personal. And that's true of the book that I'm developing now as well. So it's very rooted in family too, but then also in, I think, um, my sister friends. You know, people like uh, the novelist T.R.A. Jones and poet and now novelist uh, Honoré Jeffers have been long time and and truly um dear friends and i'm i'm so inspired by the work that they do and by the work of uh uh, the really the whole cohort of 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 black women who have emerged as writers in the u.s south in the new millennium and so my new project explores that phenomenon, and, all, and with you know a lot of nuance, I think, and complexity. And I'm really excited um, about about it. And yeah, I can't can't wait to finish it. Um, it's two years in now as far as uh, its development, and so it's coming along. Actually, I, I won uh, an interdisciplinary monograph writing award last uh, spring. That um, has enabled me to work with a a group where we meet and you know exchange writings and have feedback and all of that and this group is sponsored by the society for the humanities at cornell and so at least that was heartening as a first step because when one has worked on a project so long then there's this question well goodness what do i do without it how do i live without it you know for all of my time at cornell I had literally been chained to the book and I don't mean, (laughs) no pun intended, um, but because I, I, you know, this was just such a positive and I think nourishing experience uh, to write this book that it was hard actually to let it go. Um, And the last time that I did, you know, was a very emotional and deeply moving experience. And then the challenge was well, you know, what do I do with myself now? Like, where do I go? Because this project has been so much at the center of my intellectual work for so many years. Even as I've written so many other essays along the way as well, including a lot of <laughs> there's so much from Emancipation's Daughters that ended up hitting the cutting floor for various reasons. That you know, it's come out in journal form. So people will be getting Emancipation's Daughters in varying forms for for quite a while. <laughs> there's you know, there's a whole other chapter that I need to, you know, still need to publish on Condoleezza Rice. That's forthcoming. More on film, you know, I have on Rosa Parks, and there were just so many other things that could have been said that I really didn't have the room to say. Uh, you know, when we're working with word limits, there are just certain things that have to go. And so, it, it I'm, I'm, I'm just really excited about this new project and everything that it will allow me to do. Um, and, it, and so it builds upon this this book in some ways, but it's also very different.
0: Well, we are definitely looking looking forward to it and hopefully having you on the New Books Network again. Um, thank you again, Dr. Rache Richardson, um, for speaking with us about your book, Emancipation's Daughters.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's so wonderful to Meet, meet you. And, and just the project itself, I think, is so important. I mean, I am a, a restless and deeply committed bibliophile. I have loved books, you know, all my life. And as a scholar, they're very much, you know, uh, so much part of the lifeblood of academia. And, and I look forward to, you know, exciting and, and new books myself. And so it's just an honor and a privilege to have been interviewed.
0: Of course. Thank you.